From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. You have to be able to relate to what other individuals are going through. You cannot be detached. I think that is, and especially in the current climate, Justin, I mean, you're not empathetic to what people are going through right now and work from home and the stress on their wellness and health, then if you get detached from that, then you're gonna lose your team. Hi everyone, Justin Schreiber here. I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast today, Jason Andrew, who is a 23-year veteran of BMC. He started as a pre-sales consultant and now runs a team of over 2,000 sales professionals as the chief revenue officer. As a former rugby player from New Zealand, it's in Jason's DNA to never back down. We'll actually talk about how that attitude almost led to a brawl in the office parking lot, but ultimately ingratiated him with one of the greatest mentors of his life, John McMahon. Jason has lived around the world and done just about every job in sales and marketing. He'll share his thoughts on what it takes to run a global sales organization, hire and retain talent, even when stock incentives aren't part of the comp plan, and how to get every last rep in the company focused and on plan. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Justin, mate. Thanks for having me. Uh, just wanted to let you know, warn you that my uh, wife has let me have an afternoon coffee, so I might be a little bit hyper on you, mate. You're wired. That's what we like. Well, <laughs> I've got a few other surprises for you, actually. Uh-oh. Unbeknownst to you, Don, your assistant, shared with me your playlist. Oh, and no. <laughs> so I thought what we could do, there's there's a couple things as I was going through the playlist that did not make sense. <laughs> and I want to start off with uh, a tune... Which I know is near and dear to you. And so... Uh, I'll sing it for you if you want. <laughs> I'm not going to get in the way of a man that's singing his favorite song. The folks on the podcast can't see this though, but we got a little YouTube going here. And there's dolphins jumping in the ocean. And uh, just kind of a, a beautiful, beautiful scene. What's the story with cool things in the Little River Band in you? Mate, um... So I'm glad she gave that song as the song you played and not some of the other songs on my playlist. I just want to call that one out. But my kids will probably listen to this and they'll be laughing because, first of all, they're older now. They'll be laughing their heads off because we drive in the car and dad will put his faves, it's called Faves Playlist on, and Cool Change or Cool Charm is what my my kids will have me singing because Cool Charm's a deodorant. So I'll be like, Cool Change, Cool Charm, and I just sing it at the top of my voice. And when I go running now... It's like the Rocky theme and Thunderstruck ACDC and, you know, Little River Band. And I'm definitely stuck in the 80s, mate, 80s, 90s. A little bit upset about Van Halen dying the other day. So, Oh, that was, uh, that was a blow indeed. A blow indeed. I think we're all mourning that loss. But he left us many, many great yeah. tunes that will uh, outlive him. Yeah, all but right, thanks well, for that, Justin. Good way to kick it off. And Dawn, that's it. Dawn, you're done. That's it. You're toast. No, no, I'm, I'm glad we got that out of the way. It's important that everybody knows Little River Band is on the top of the playlist. So from there, it's all going to be downhill in terms of uh-huh. the, the discussion. All right. So clearly, it goes deep with you, Jason. It goes real deep. So we're going to have to get back, go to the beginning. 
Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what life was like for you. Yeah, so I'm probably uh, a little bit of a unique accent for uh, your interview audience, Nate. And um, I will try to, to to make it more American. American. Um, but I, I grew up in rural New Zealand. I'm not Australian. Any of you listening in that call that one out, there'll be a big slap coming. Um, but it was a lot of family. It uh, was a lot, lot of, you know, we my my two oldest kids, my brother, my sister, um, all of my family live still in the same area. I grew up in a little place called Kumu, a little township called Huapai, which means fruit good or good fruit. And everybody, you know, had a fam, you know, had a family farm or you know, a block of land they worked. And um, you know, you, the school there was from you know four years old to thirteen years old. You're all kind of blended, and you felt like a big fish. Um, I guess when you're going to school and we'd all walk to school over, you know, good old stories that your parents would tell you about, you know, you'd walk to school in snow and bare feet and all that sort of business. But they were true for me, mate. Absolutely true. And my dad had a wages book. We didn't get any money given to us. We had to work for it. It was good grounding. And every year, once a year, <laughs> you take the little notebook, the wages book, and I'm sure he's kept it. And at the front would have my brother's name and my name, not my sister, because she always got off for free. Um, and we would we would negotiate an hourly rate. So when we would work on the farm, we'd we'd uh, we'd make our money. And then when I was thirteen, they they um there was an, the high school was in the city, an all boys high school. So I was a I was a big kid when I was in the country, and when I hit the city in, in Auckland, you know, lots of Polynesian families. I was the littlest kid in the class. So I went from being literally the big kid to the little kid overnight. Uh, getting to school, we'd leave home at 6.30 in the morning and we'd get home at 7 at night. There was a lot of, you know, two buses and you'd get off the last bus and you'd have to walk, you know, a mile and a half to school and then that night walk a mile and a half home. So it was it was, it was was a school of hard knocks, mate. I'm not going to make a big deal about it because I'm a big guy and I'm, I'm going to get over it. But, yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Justin. <laughs> well, I so, – so, so true story. You, you know, walking to school, bare feet, don't have shoes. But I love the priorities here. I heard a story that like when it was time for you to kind of start making your own purchases, it wasn't the shoes you went after. You actually had your heart set on a cassette stereo. Yes, sir. We're dating ourselves now. The man wants a cassette stereo as opposed to shoes. I love the priorities. Walk us through the scheme that you hatched in order to finance that major purchase. I'd gone to my grandparents' place and they had this cassette deck right so those of us that are older we would mix our own music tapes right so I was probably 13 years old and my parents were taking us on a trip to Australia so we're going overseas for the first time and you you would those days you would buy your electrical appliances in Australia and bring them back to New Zealand and I wanted to buy a cassette deck and I, I had worked on the farm and made $75 and my dad said um yeah you ain't going to get a you know, not going to get anything that great with $75. So I went and brought, with my dad's help, um, watermelon plants, um, literally probably about 300 small watermelon plants. And he gave me about three quarters of an acre on the back of the farm. And we laid down some plastic and, you know, I planted the plants and I would go to school, either before school or after school, you know, at least every second day, you'd have to water the plants. And and they grew up. And, and remember, I'm first year at high school. High school in those days was... In New Zealand's five years. So I was 13 years old and plants grew, watermelons grew. And I, I said to my dad, um, I need you to help me drive them into school on the back, you know, on the, with a trailer on the back. And I'm going to sell these watermelons 
at school. So I went to the first 15 coach uh, for rugby and the first 11 coach for cricket. And I said, hey, I'm going to bring these in. I'm going to sell them. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I, But I said, I'll give you guys a cut because um, I'm going to need some help, right, to, to, to get this organized. And I literally became infamous or famous and I was, I, we, I would, I'd have people queuing up to buy these watermelons and they would just take them and crush them on the ground, you know, eat the watermelon, leave the rinds along. The headmaster called me into his office because there was watermelon rinds suddenly all over the school everywhere. And um, I made, I, I literally, um, I think I made about $380 off my 75. It was hard work, but I ended up getting not just the cassette player, I got a ghetto blaster. Um, it literally was awesome, and I had enough money left over that I bought a pair of Reeboks. So now you got the and, shoes and the cassette. Yeah, it was, they weren't pumps because they were boy ones, but they were they were Reebok, you know, the high ones, whatever basketball boots. And I had my Ghetto Blast, and I was I was the snizzle, mate. I was I felt I was, but it, you know, I it learned I learned pretty quickly that I took seventy five, turned it into three eighty, whatever it was, and and I you know got into trouble, but negotiated my way out of it. Um, but for the first three years at high school, they called me Watermelon Boy. That's what the singers used to call me. It was, here comes Watermelon Boy. Oh, give me a watermelon. So, you know, and, and I just want to make sure nobody missed this, but that actually catapulted you to snizzle status. Is that what you said? <laughs> uh, th yeah, did I say that? Did I, that's All right. We don't, we don't want to miss that. That's, that's important. <laughs> All right. So uh, things are going well for you in high school. I know that your grandfather was a big influence on you as well. Tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, so so rural New Zealand, um, you know, my grand grandfather and grandmother had a um, a horse stud. Actually, they used to breed thoroughbred horses, um, paces, and my grandmother was an amputee. Um, so from about the age of nine, I would go and help out uh, in the weekends, um, and I, I used to love it. I used to really look forward to it. But he was old school, right? So he was a mechanic. Um, you know, that, had, you know, his, he'd grown up, you know, through the Great Depression, you know, seen two world wars. He was old, old school. He was tough, right? So, you know, there wasn't, I loved every minute of it, but he, everything you did, you had to do it properly, right? So, you know, do it once and get it right. And, and he would talk to you about, you know, if the job's not worth doing well, then it ain't worth doing at all. Um, and he had that never give up attitude. So, you know, if you mowed the lawns, if your job was, my job was say to mow the lawns on a Saturday afternoon or whatever, after sport in the morning, it wasn't just mow the lawns, you had to check the lawnmower, you know, like you had to clean the filter and, you know, you had to, you had to prepare for what you the job you're about to do. And then when you'd done the job, you know, I would take a lot of pride, even though I was like, you know, 10 or 11 years old, that he would come out and, and inspect the lawn and whatever job I'd done and he'd check it and, you know, you get a thumbs up. You normally come inside and my grandmother would, you know, give me a bar of chocolate or some treat and, you know, make me, you know, kiss me on the head. But my grandfather was always this, you know, hard knocks view. And then my grandmother gave me all the love in the background, but it was, it was a great way to learn either that sort of thing that do it once, do it right, do it properly. You know, if you're going to do a job, make sure you get it right. That, that sort of attitude started from a really young age. So actually incredible training. You're negotiating wages with your dad. <laughs> you're earning your Selling own watermelons. Pay. Your grandfather is teaching you the value of a, of a hard day's work. You get to high school. I understand, uh, I think it was your junior year, you had your eye set on a job. Uh -huh. and tell us a little bit about how you, uh, how you landed your first big job. Yeah, good call, mate. So, I, um, so in New Zealand, it's called sixth form. It's the year before you graduate, you know, your senior year, so junior year. 
and I'm sitting in this audience, about 300 boys, and this guy gets up and talks up about this uh, this cadetship, this apprenticeship. And back in rural New Zealand, all my mates had left school by now. They're all 16 years old. They're working. They're builders. They're plumbers. They're electricians. You know, they're doing trades, and they're making great money. And I'm going to school at 6.30 in the morning and coming home at 7 at night, and I'm at school, and I'm like, this isn't fair. And this guy got up and talked about this apprenticeship where – you know, you would go through this all the level. They would send you to university at night and you'd, do, you'd work for them during the day and you would get this grounding in all aspects of their business. You would, you know, if you were in accounts payable one week and then, you know, one for a few months and then you'd be out on the factory floor, you know, fabricating pipe for three months. And But you'd get the grounding in the whole company. And um, I'm like, that's me, right? That's me. So the, I couldn't apply because I wasn't a senior. Senior year rolls around, I'm waiting and nothing happens, right? They didn't turn up at the school. So I'm like, what? So I had a car by then. So I cruise off to, I find out where they are, Wormald International. They're in Penrose. I drive to Penrose, just make it in the car. And I go to the front reception. I ask to speak to the company secretary. And to me, that meant a secretary, all right? Not the company secretary. This is a company that's got probably 35,000 across the country, 35,000 employees. It's big, right? Multiple different divisions. So um, she goes, one moment, please. Can I ask who's calling you? Yes, it's Jason Andrew. And um, had my best gear on. And um, so she she walks me through about 20 minutes later. And I'm meeting this guy called Jeremy Edbrook. And he is Wormald International Company Secretary. And he goes, why are you here? And I'm like, I'm here to apply for the, the cadetship, the accountancy cadetship. He goes, we're not employing, we're not hiring this year. And I'm like, why not? He goes, well, we've got, you know, we get one every year. We've got seven-year backlog. We've got seven in a row. We're quite happy with where we are right now i'm like you know and i'm like you're making a mistake i mean um, i've been waiting for you to come back i saw your pitch last year from this gentleman that came to school and and i think that i'm perfect for it and i've picked my subjects this year that are that will be right for the job and i've done everything i can and i've you know written it down on a piece of paper and this is what i've been waiting for and i've been ready for it and he's like you've got the job and i'm like what it literally was a cold call and i hadn't set my finals yet for being in my senior year. And I literally didn't bother, right? I kind of messed around with them. But I did seven years there going to, you know, working in different parts of the business. I had, I did three months in the morgue in Auckland morgue um, because they had fire protection equipment and safety equipment. So I was the service engineer in the morgue, which was awful. So I went through all these different jobs and then I went and played rugby in England and uh, came back from playing rugby went back to them and said, I want the job back. And I said, we don't have anything right for you right now, but we've just brought the first Unix Infamix computer in New Zealand, right? We've spent $2 million on a 386, literally, computer. And I'm like, whoa. And they're like, we want you to be part of the project. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. But I, I started doing it and I was on the project team and, and I was consulting and we were gathering data and build, customizing and building. And everything in those days was built from the ground up. There wasn't really applications. And I even did some Infamix for fourth generation 4GL programming and I couldn't do it very well. And But I, I was at school at night and doing this and I loved it. And the company that I was working with, the IT company, asked, offered me a job. And I said, do you realize that I'm a cadet at this company? And, you know, there's 16 board members and 14 of them have gone through the cadetship and I'm going to be on the board one day. And three months later, they got acquired and I got laid off. So the way the story ends is I ended up going back to the company I was consulting to. I'm like, hey, you know that job you were talking to me about a few months back? Uh, is that still going right now? And 
next thing you know, I didn't. I'm working for them, and then I ended up at BMC. It was uh, I was very lucky, very fortunate. This is certainly a walk down memory lane. I heard you mention the 286. Soon to 386, be 386, Matt. We were 386. You were 386. I was going to say the uh, that was the big tech Ooh, innovation yeah. was when the 386 came out. You also mentioned rugby. I know that sport has been a big part of your life, particularly mm. when you were younger. Tell us a little bit about some of the, the stories relating to sport and how you carried those through into your business career. I would have liked to have been better at it. Um, I played a lot of rugby. I played a lot of cricket. The good thing about cricket now is our biggest office is in India. So now I've got the best stories that I can talk to the team in India about. They love it. But rugby was, rugby is, you know, I heard Jeremy talk about football in Newcastle. Rugby's probably the equivalent in New Zealand. It's a religion, right? And if you want status in the, you know, where you live and with your friends, you play rugby. I finished high school and I was, I was tall, but I was small, relatively speaking. I was only 18 and I got thrown straight into what would be considered a, you know, um, provincial level or senior level team for where, where we lived. And um, I got beaten up and it's probably the, I, I learned a lot of lessons from that, right? Because I, all I wanted to do was crack that team and be in that team. But I got, I did everything. I literally killed myself to get in that team to then actually get killed. So the lesson, the big lesson I learned from that was I wasn't ready, right? So now I have people talking to me about promotions and next job and I see how ambitious they are and I see how driven they want to be and they, they definitely have a lot of natural talent and ability, but they don't have some of the experience and they don't have... So I'm coming up against people that are current All Blacks or past All Blacks that are literally cracking me in half every weekend. And because I'm young and dumb, I'm getting up and going again the following weekend. I, I got promoted to be captain at a very young age of a team I played for. And that learned me a lot of lessons about leadership. I didn't understand why the, the coach picked me, but I learned a lot quickly from that. Because when you're a young kid, you know, I find that, you know, at a, kids at a high school or university, you're kind of told what to do in everything you do, especially in high school and college. So when you first come out, your first job, you're looking to be told what to do. So when you get that first opportunity to lead, whether it's in work or in sport, you there's not a lot of things you've You've, you've picked up and people talk about developing and building versus being natural leaders. I do think you develop and build and you become a leader, but you've got to have something about you that wants to do it, right? Something about you that's good at it, that some people want to follow, listen and follow uh, and, and that people can gravitate or, you know, want to work with you. So rugby was awesome for me for that. And I still love it, tell stories and, you know, you know, my, my kids still laugh at me because I think I was a legend, but I wasn't quite that good. That idea of natural leadership is an important one, particularly in sales. Mm -hmm. When you think about natural leadership, what are the qualities, the characteristics that you identify in a person and, and say, yeah, that person's a leader? Yeah, you you you, you develop a sense for it and you see it in action. And But there are some some core traits. Empathy, I think, is, is top of the list for me. You have to be able to relate to what other individuals are going through. You cannot be detached. I think that is, and especially in the current climate, Justin, I mean, if you're not empathetic to what people are going through right now and work from home and the stress on their wellness and health, then if you get detached from that, then you're going to lose your team. I think the other thing too is you've got to have a drive. You've got to be driven. You have to be able to create a vision. The difference between being a manager and a leader, right? Managers will pick up budgets. They will have KPIs. They will have management goals. 
they will have leading indicators using some phraseology you've heard before, and, and they will manage to the numbers. Leaders do more than that, right? They they create the vision, they set the path, they they're the standard, you know, they they'll actually be out there in the front doing it themselves. You know, it's the you know, it's the talk the talk, walk the walk approach to doing it. And that's the difference to me is that they might still know and be able to understand the data and the analytics uh, and how to, you know, look at a plan and own a plan and the, the measurement inside it, but they lead, they, they create the vision, they set the mission and they build a rhythm around the way they want the team to be in the culture, what the culture is going to look like. And then they they are the, the amplification of that back inside their team. You ticked off two attributes that I found fascinating. One is empathy. And then the second is just tenacity or drive. Mm-hmm. Great article in the Harvard Business Review. This one goes back, I think, to the 1960s. It's about a consultancy that believes they have the best scorecard to figure out who's going to be successful. And they get hired by a car dealership to apply this thing. And so they come in, they screen all the candidates, and they come up with one person. They say, this is your new salesperson. And they look at the person and they say, never sold cars. We've actually never sold before. We don't believe you. They end up hiring the person and he crushes it. And the dealership comes back and they said, well, what were you looking for? And they said, empathy and drive. Hmm. And that person had an ability to relate to every person that walked through the door. But secondly, when the inevitable defeat came, they weren't crushed. If anything, they were just energized by it. Yeah. So so football, um, I've got to learn American football um, and the, the role of the cornerback um, to me, reminds me of someone that's a BDR and an ISD role because cornerbacks, every play, a quarterback will target them and, you know, the flashy wide receiver will run at them and the quarterback has to defend. And sometimes they will and sometimes they'll get beaten. But they have to have the memory of it for about three seconds of being beaten because the very next play, especially if they're beaten, they're going to be targeted, right? So if you have a bad call, if you have a bad meeting, if you have a bad, you know, if you have a bad management review, if you have a bad QBR, a bad QSR, a bad pipeline session, whatever it is, you've got to learn from it, digest it, learn from it, understand what you did wrong, and then get back up and go again, all right, cornerbacks. So you come over to uh, BMC very early on, you were given some pretty big responsibilities. I think they made a small acquisition, handed it over to you, and basically said, "Make it happen." Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so so um, I was working in Australia. We, you know, when I started, there was only a small handful of us, but some, you know, living legends. We were under the guidance of a guy called Bill Dunn, uh, a great leader, and you know, some awesome, fantastic salespeople around me um, that I worked with and learned from. And one, I was helping launch in North Asia. So we, you know, we first market cracked into China. Um, you know, went to Taiwan, you know, big office opened in Hong Kong, we went to South Korea. And I was actually in Japan, I was in Tokyo, and it was about three in the morning. I took a call from our then head of R&D, Bob Beecham, who turned out to be our CEO for about 15 years. And Bob said, we just made an acquisition, but it's it's a disruptor. It's nothing like we've ever done before. Those days, you know, 2000, that was the dot-com stuff, and there was a lot of this XSP, you know, MSP, ASP, market boom stuff we want to and basically if you look it's early stage cloud all right or early stage SaaS, and we want to embrace it so this is you know 20 years ago so i said okay and they said but you know when can you be in houston i said well i'm in tokyo i could probably come next week and they're like no no to live 
I'm like, well, so I picked up a young family. Um, my daughters at the time were like, you know, five and three, and we relocated. And my job working with a very talented person called Mary Nugent was to build this startup, be the disruptor inside the company. So innovator's dilemma, right? So you've got this monstrous P&L business, but it's it's in the in the product life cycle, it's coming out the back end, right? It's it's you can see you're gonna have to harvest it and farm it out to extinction. So what are you gonna do to be the new front? So you've got to create something and build something new inside the ship, but cover it up long enough so that no one knows what you're doing. And then when you're ready, you unveil it. So we, had, we got three sales reps, three or four sales reps. We had to you know, sell 2 million bucks in the first year with no market. And we couldn't touch any of the existing customers, which kind of limited what we could do, seeing this thing was a multi-multi-billion dollar um, line of business. What happened was, fast forward about four or five years later, the architecture and the solution and the technology and what we were doing became the foundation for the fastest growing part of the business. So we actually went from like 2 million to four years later, being over 250 million in revenue to the company. And then, you know, retraining and re-engineering. And I remember standing up in front of rooms of people with 400 people in, you know, in Houston and people yelling at me and literally throwing stuff at me because you don't understand what you're doing and you're going to, you know, be the downfall. And I'm like, but you don't understand. If you stay on the course you are, then you'll miss this whole opportunity. So, I enjoyed it. I loved it. I embraced it. The you know the disrupt disruption side of doing or crafting and changing a path for the company was fantastic. I absolutely loved it. So definitely this experience you had early in life, the fighter, the rugby player, brought out the best in you when you're standing up in front of that room yeah. of, of, of screaming employees. But you do walk into a situation that's basically a two million dollar business. It had to be intimidating for you, and and when everything was taken off the table and and put off limits. What was the strategy that you put together at that point that allowed you to go from two mil to 250 mil over the course of four years? So it was building, what was the value proposition? What problem were we solving, right? And how were we differentiated from what was happening in the market? And not only how were we differentiated, what value did that differentiate drive for the customers that you're pitching to? We hired a very aggressive small group of people straight out of pretty much straight out of college. And we had this very close-knit team. We all lived in Houston. We all worked pretty much. We were in shouting distance of each other. And we just were fanatical about pitching the value prop. And we had a very sweet early stage demo. So remember back in 2000, every, nothing needed to be installed, right? Everything. We, so we could go to a client and say, oh, you just give us you know, a credential to look at that device that you're running right now. And within 30 seconds, I can tell you what that device is doing. And they're like, no, you can't. I'm like, yeah, I can. And so a lot of it was, you know, moving towards that online. Now, there was a challenge because in those days, you know, the biggest value proposition was if you were trading online. So the internet, the e-commerce state of internet was very, very young, unless it was pornography. And one thing that I wasn't allowed to do was go to several companies that were in that particular vertical. So we were trying to find and craft. And once we found someone that had an online presence, and we could tell them how their online environment was performing, even though they weren't doing e-commerce through it, they would say, can you do that for my on-premise or behind firewall stuff? We go, of course we can. So it's a lot of what I see now, but translated to, you know, we would go in and say, we, this is what we can see you're doing. This is how we can help. Here's the result that we've got from an early stage. Within 30 minutes, we had them tagged, right? We knew if we had 
uh, an early stage opportunity. We would, we would qualify in that new business meeting, that first meeting, this person is interested. It's something that you hear again and again, but it's always the starting point. You got to figure out the unique value you're creating for customers. If you start with that, then everything flows naturally. If you get it wrong, though, uh, just a host of issues that that result. Will, yeah. So not a bad way to start a career at BMC. Mm-hmm. You were there for at BMC one or two years. Is that? Uh, yeah, yeah. We acquired this little company <laughs> called Blade Logic um, in 2008. Uh, and uh, at the time, I, you know, the company was going through another big transformation, and I was asked to participate in the sales kickoff, preparing for sales kickoff, which those of you on the phone or listening in that have ever done this know how big sales kickoffs are. They just consume you completely. And I had two fantastic enablement people, and they were off training John McMahon's sales team, about 75 people. And, you know, first half day comes back and they look frazzled. They look absolutely fried. I'm like, you guys okay? I'm like, oh, it's tough and it's hard. And by the end of the day. And, and just a little context for the listeners. John McMahon is running the sales organization for Blade Logic. Uh-huh. His company is now acquired and are part of BMC. And uh-huh. uh, and, and the introduction is about to occur. So go ahead. Yeah. So I'm, I'm like, you know, end of day and the person, it was maybe afternoon, the person's crying, the trainer. I'm not going back in there. They're mean, and I'm like, oh. and here's the rugby you know player in me, right? So I'm six foot four. I'm not a little guy. I walk in, and they are they're like they're like military. They're like sitting in their seats, ready to go. You know, obviously I didn't realize at the time they're probably stack ranked in, in order of who was you know highest to lowest. They're very formatted, and um, and I remember like starting, and then the questions and the ha- interruptions and you know, tell me this and tell me that. And I'm like, and, and then one individual challenged me. And for those of them that were in the room, they're probably laughing and listening. And I said, okay, you know, they challenged me. And I thought, I've got to set a scene. I've got to show them that I'm in control here. And I'm like, listen, Petal, if, you know, if you really want to go down that path, then let's get up, stand up now, walk outside, and we'll resolve it out on the street. And everyone's like, whoa, but... It was, and my team sitting behind me waiting to see how I would interact. These guys, I mean, these are, you know, there's a lot of people that you'll interview and legends that that were sitting in that room. And and we had to prove that we deserve to be there as well. And it turned out to be a great thing. John asked me to come and work for him, I guess, about two or three weeks later. So that something. was your interview with John? That was pretty much the way. <laughs> and I remember the kind of all the questions would go around. He asked the question and like halfway through the sick, I took the room on like a day and a half and halfway through the second day and he starts asking me questions when he rang me to ask me if I want to come work for him I, I kind of realized that I had to say yes <laughs> all kidding aside though it was a, a phenomenal organization yeah. John obviously leading it and a number of different CROs coming out of that group can you talk a little bit about the culture that BMC crew the blade logic crew created how was that so powerful and how could something like that be replicated? Yeah, so everybody was held accountable for their role, right? And everybody everybody was just, you know, Jeremy talks about lions. Everybody just fiercely wanted to do the best, right? Everybody wanted to just get better. And I remember going and, you know, watching these guys early on in, you know, QBRs, QSRs, or in, you know, learning environments and enablement sessions. And everybody's engaged and they're hungry and replicating that and holding on to that as, you know, people can't have come and go over the years 
it's a fantastic foundation for any sales organization. I learned this saying from a guy called Kelly Conrad, which was earn, learn, and have fun, right? And I use that culturally even today. You know, this is from all those years ago. If you have a sales organization that wants to earn, right? And Luca Lazaron once said to me, he goes, you know, you can't be solely driven by money, but you've got to have a learning, you've got to have an earning platform somewhere where you're, you're very relevant to the customers you're dealing and selling to, where your sales team sees a path to, to earn money. But learning, you know, earn, learn. The learn part of it is, you know, be coachable, be open, be, you know, be accepting of learning and changing. And so that means that your skill set's transferable. And you go to high school, you go to college or university, and you learn a profession. You don't learn sales at high school, college, or university. There isn't a degree. You learn it through the manager you work through out in the street, right? You learn it through, you know, role play and enablement and coaching and being developed and and you get better at your skill and your profession by what you're learning in the real world. The best salespeople that go through to be great managers and great leaders, they're the ones that, that come through that state, that culture. And once you get on top of your game, you know, um, if you look at spin selling or something like that, when you get good at it, it's actually for you and the customer, it's fun. It's something you enjoy. I wanted to follow up on one point. You talked about the importance of a good leader, empathy and tenacity. Empathy, though, does not necessarily mean soft or give people a pass. How do you strike that balance between holding people accountable, but also exhibiting the kind of empathy that's going to allow people, attract people to your leadership style? Yeah, it's actually um, a really good point because for first time, first line, you know, new managers, it's probably one of the harder things to learn. They can have difficult conversations with customers, but they find it very hard to have difficult conversations with the people that they're working with. And often you will find that a first, first-time, first-line manager will hold on to maybe their first hire or someone on their team way too long, right? Which isn't good for them or the person that's working for them. And they'll try to cover that up uh, by being, you know, super rep, you know, by being covering the gaps of that person that works for them. So you, you're actually, when you're honest and you, you're empathetic with the, you know, having that difficult conversation, you're doing justice to both of you and, and allowing both of you to get better at what you do. I actually look for my team to give me feedback all the time, right? They probably don't like doing it, but, but um, I love it when I get it, right? And that, you know, concept of every bit of feedback is a gift. It truly is. If you consume it properly and you learn from it and you become a better person. So you are getting close. I know you measure your time at BMC in quarters, <laughs> You're coming up on 100 quarters yes, in the not-too-distant future, which is an amazing feat in and of itself. Hmm. I wanted to drill in, though, on a couple of things that make BMC unique. Number one, privately held company. Yeah. So a lot of companies out there are dangling stock incentives in front of their people to hmm. retain them. You don't have that luxury. What's your approach, then, to recruiting, training, retaining top talent? It's a, it's a really good point and something that I didn't actually recognize or realize until probably, you know, the first year into being privately owned because the, the opportunity for the people in the team is different, right? So first of all, let's talk about recruiting. 
the story that we have of the 40-year history of the company and in particular the last you know couple of decades and when you look around the legends that you interview especially a particular brand of what that the character or the, the type of person that that is a lot of the leaders out there that are that are running or in senior positions in these high companies have one thing in common they came through bmc right at some point in their career they went through BMC and and most of them, if not all of them, remember or they talk about it fondly, whether it's for people they work with or lessons they learned or things or development that they had. So we recruit people on that. You're going to learn a profession that you will and a trade that you will have for the rest of your life. And you're going to learn it um, again from you know years, literally hundreds of years when you put all our expertise together, uh, people that have done this in, in the field. You won't get it from college or university, you'll get it. Uh, with us. The second part of it is, is this earn, learn, and have fun aspect to it, right? It's we'll give you an earning platform, we'll give you a learning platform, but we're going to have some fun. Culturally, I look, uh, I'm very deliberate, very intentional about my brand, uh, my leadership team's brand, and actually the sales team's brand. I make, I make them think about what that branding, you know, how would you describe us? What are three adjectives that you would take that describe you as a leader, okay, what would your team say about you as a leader? So that when you are, you know, your team's recruiting an individual, they can talk about you as the person that you're going to learn from and you're going to be a part of. And and the the brand culture that sits inside the sales team, we all want to do the best for each other. We all want to learn from each other. And I I, I have this phrase, you know, destination BMC. We've created a culture where this this is not just a, it's not just a company, it's a place you want to come build your career, you know, set down roots. I'm a great example of that. And look at the art of the possible. I started in New Zealand as a pre-sales engineer, and now I have 2,000 people and I'm the CRO of, you know, an iconic software brand. That's the message, right? Another facet of BMC that I wanted to dig into is the fact that it truly is a global company. And as the CRO of BMC, you've needed to learn how to run a global sales organization. What are the hallmarks of a well-run global organization and where do people trip up? I have a unique perspective of that, I think, because I've worked in Asia Pacific, I've worked in EMEA, and I've worked in the Americas, you know, and I've also had channel businesses and direct businesses and, you know, quite a complex organization having mainframe, you know, right through to SaaS. So it is, you know, the real point you're getting to here is it's different. Even when, you know, if you're a new startup, creating a global sales organization is daunting, right? Um, because first of all, you've got to recruit them. You might know who those people are and you've got trusted them from other roles and you might want to bring them in, but you've got to create and build that team structure from scratch. It's not an easy job. Um, you know, someone's talked to me about developing a team versus building a team. They're different. They're very different ways of actually creating a sales organization. As a sales leader, what can an individual do to get a true feel for how the sales regions differ, what what makes them similar? If you were kicking off and you wanted to say, go to Asia Pack, um, the easiest way to probably get started there would have to to create a, a partnership. You probably don't want to go all in yourself straight off, you know, straight out of the gate. Um, when we launch new offerings, so this is the thing about being innovators dilemma again, when you're starting something new, we probably don't look at potentially at the existing sales organization. We might look at, you know, one thing we're, we're, we're embracing right now is, you know, some areas on, on the mainframe around security. And in some of the regions where our people maybe aren't, don't know how to get to the CISO, there are partners that do, right? 
So how can I get off the ground and leverage partnership to get started quickly? But that you've got to understand that indirect motion from direct, right? But you've got to be also very transparent that I do have the intention of going direct, right? So how we grow together and then coexist when that happens. It, it, it's different, you know, USA from, you know, New York to San Francisco, it's a time zone difference. Culturally, it's very the same. It's pretty much the same. So recruiting and moving people around um, is okay. Amir, different again. So I would say the further you are away from the mothership, the harder it is to own, although we're all getting used to doing, I think my first video call this morning was 5 a.m. up, and my last one will be 7 p.m. Uh, I'm seeing more of my team now because I'm doing it this way than we used to when we'd fly everywhere. But in some of the edges that you know you might want to penetrate or new verticals you might want to attack, rather than recruiting because it's expensive to get up and running, possibly or potentially a faster way to do it is to embrace and direct. One topic I'd like to close on, and I've heard mm -hmm. you mention this a few times, is planning. I know that uh -huh. you have a very distinct point of view in terms of what constitutes a real plan, what isn't a plan. Can you talk a little bit about planning the sales organization and how you apply it in your own organization? One thing I think of that, that that's kind of interesting when I look at, you know, the complexity of what I look after or what some others are doing out there is, is how much you use the word plan or planning in what we do. Account plans, territory plans, white space plans, PG plans, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The, the word planning is used everywhere and it's loosely used in a lot of cases, right? And not strictly followed. So I remember early on embracing the concept of a business plan. So you want your first line leaders and in case, sometimes even your individual contributors to own their plan. So you ask them to come and echo back to you how you're running your book of business, you're an RSM, how are you going to be successful, right? So, and it's not just about the people or the process that you're going to run. What is your plan? So you got four quarters, right? What's your operating rhythm? What are you going to do different from week one to week 12? What does week six mean to you versus, you know, every Friday or every Monday? So how are you going to run and structure your operating rhythm? Okay, Q1 has a kickoff in a club. Q4 is normally when everyone does a lot of revenue. What's different about your the way you plan for Q1 and you operate in Q1 versus Q4? Okay, now inside that plan, you know, look at your PG. Um, look at your white space. Look at your account, you know, accounts that you have. Do you have a renewal-based business? Our new logo, stand standalone, fast growth, growth business. Do you have an attached business? How are you operating that PG activity and measuring that against the plan that you run for the year? So I, I got fascinated 10 years ago about the use of planning and measuring against the plan. So if you can, and I had leaders that say to me, this is, I don't understand why I'm doing all this work. And literally two years later or the second year in, they're going, uh, hey, I can't talk to you right now because I've got to go and build, I've got to operate my business plan. I've got to create my plan. You don't want to get, you know, you don't want to, you know, the old analogy of, you know, over plan and can't deliver. But when you come to a QBR in your second or third quarter in and you're either ahead or behind, you go back to your original plan and you go, what have I done or what haven't I done and what changed and how am I resetting? Because if you're doing it through trying to manage chaos, you'll get what you pay for, right? You'll get a disaster. So the plan becomes the way you own it, the way you consume it, the way you're able to articulate it, the way it creates your vision, everything you do, it's the way you operate. It, it should be part of your core. Well, there's a tremendous, it's a tremendously deliberate approach to running a sales organization. What I like about it is everybody's on the same page, mm -hmm. expectations are clear, and 
you walk out of a situation like that and everyone knows this is the direction we're going. This is what my specific- I have about 80 first line managers and the first eight weeks of the year, I give every one of them an hour of my time to step me through their business plan. I think it's that important. Mm-hmm. Jason, the time has flown by. Yeah, we're at the too. end of our discussion. I think it's only appropriate. We Play came in with Little River Band. I think we need to exit with another with another one of your favorites here. Oh dear. I, I, I pulled it up. <laughs> and uh, so this is the one we're gonna this is the one we're gonna close off on. But it truly has been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Jason, for your wisdom, for your insights, and for the great work that you're doing. That's my that's my end of quarter song, mate. <laughs> that's the end of quarter song. All right. We all believe in miracles, especially uh-huh. at the end of the quarter. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.